Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. So good to be with you guys. It's good to see you. It's good to be seen. It is May Day. Sarah, I am so sorry we missed you. Um, that was on me. Forgive me. So we have a gift for you too. So um, it's a gift from a friend of mine, the book we handed out. So it's his gift to our community. So I think spring's here to stay. Can we give like a hooray or something? Yeah. Yeah. Man. It's going to stick around for a while anyway, it looks like. What's not here to stay is uh, transitions aren't stopping anytime soon, are they? So many of you guys are in transition, graduating, some job changing, big summers ahead. Uh, Some of you are, a few of you are getting married, Maddie. Um... We got some babies on the way in the oven as I speak. Um, Lots of good things looking forward, but that also brings its own. I mean, can anybody agree with me? Like the year after you graduate is like one of the smoothest years of your life. Just, yeah, right. Didn't mean to cause more anxiety there, Jared. Jared is like, what? I thought it was bad already, you know. We also have people dealing with loss. We have people who are in, as Ignatius would call it, seasons of desolation. They feel like desert. They feel discombobulated. Maybe that's all of us in one way or the other, especially the last few years. Ignatius said sometimes we're in seasons of consolation where we kind of feel the, the wind of God in ourselves. Um, we feel alive to him. Things may not be going perfectly, but they're, we feel like they're moving. That's a season of consolation. We're being consoled in other times, desolation. We feel stuck, or we feel like we're in a cycle, or we feel like we can't stop doing what we don't want to do, or we don't know what's next, all those things. The complexity is, is in a community... We have both going on at the same time, all the time. And as a community, we kind of have to grow up in that to realize that that's that's the case. So we learn to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who are mourning. And sometimes we're mourning one day and rejoicing the next, right? We're in these places. This was Jesus' life, by the way. This was his life. Can you imagine knowing you're the savior of the world and also living with what it's going to take? What's going to ask of you? He's living in consolation and desolation. So in him we stand as individuals, as a community. In him we stand. We look to him as our example of how to be followers and how to be a people. Holding both, mourning and rejoicing. Walking in consolation, 
persevering in desolation. John 3, 22 to 30. We've been in the Gospel of John. We're going to look at Jesus and his cousin today. He has something rich for us this morning. I have to confess going in, this is one of those texts that I'm anxious about preaching. Not because it's like some controversial topic or anything like that. It's more because it's so personal to me. It, it means so much to me. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, knowing that, paint, you can come look at this painting uh, when you're after the service if you want. We'll probably have it up next week too. But he, he gifted me with this painting. He knew that it had been so deeply formational uh, for me. And he also knew that there was a lot of failure wrapped up around uh, the journey in it for me. John 3, to 30 reads like this. After this, I think after this means Jesus' engagement with Nicodemus. And then John's commentary after that, at least that's how it's fleshing out in, in the gospel. After Jesus, this, Jesus and his disciples went to Judea. That's interesting. He says went to Judea because he's already in Judea. Nicodemus' conversation was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in Judea. I think what's meant here is Jesus went to the countryside. It's kind of like saying, yeah, he was already in the county, but, but he went out into the county. We kind of know what that means. He got away from the city. That's what I think is being said here. He went there and spent time with his disciples, and he baptized. But John, that's his cousin, he was also baptized. And John's not the one who wrote this. It's a different John. This is his cousin. He's baptizing in Anon near Salem because there is plenty of water there that helps and people were coming and being baptized and then John gives us John the writer gives us quick commentary he hadn't been thrown uh, in prison yet a debate arose between John's disciples and a certain Jew concerning purification afterward they came to John John the Baptist the baptizer, saying, Rabbi, the one who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, whom you've testified of, well, he's on this side of the Jordan now too. He's on, he's on our turf over here. And he's baptizing. And everyone's going to him. John answered, man can only receive what has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I have said, I am not the Christ. I am the one who's been sent before him. The one who has the bride, well, he's the bridegroom. I'm the one, but, or, but the friend of the bridegroom, the one who's attending and hearing from him, well, he gets to rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. This joy is mine, and it has now been fulfilled. See, guys, it's necessary for him to increase, but I am to diminish. You know, on the one hand, it's a pretty straightforward text here. It doesn't appear like there's a lot of layers, but there's a deep richness here. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us through it. Let me pray. Lord, open our minds especially our hearts, help us 
be examples of precisely what the baptizer is espousing. Help us to receive what you have for us. Help us to open our hand, internalize it, receive it. Do work in us, Lord. May it begin anew here. May it begin perhaps for the first time. God, we have paradigms, perspectives, outlooks that we live out of. John's words are addressing one of those. Lord, it's not an easy one, not to understand, but to live out. So we're asking for your help. May your spirit come alongside your word in grace so that we can respond with gusto. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So John here in this text is bringing before us two parallel settings. First is Jesus. He's now fully engaged in mission. He's doing it. He's on the field. And John tells us, interestingly, this ministry, this mission's including baptizing folks. It's a little surprising to us. Actually, the next chapter, if you look at verse 2 of chapter 4, John gives a little bit of a clarifying statement. He says, well, it wasn't really Jesus the one actually doing the baptizing, it's his disciples. But that's going on. And then, over here, not far from where Jesus is, there's John the Baptist, his cousin. John says he's baptizing too. In fact, for John, baptism is a central kind of expression, demonstration, uh, outtake of his ministry. It resides very core for him. Let's review for just a minute who John the Baptist is. John has been given an assignment. Really, you could say since birth. Even before birth, he had been given an assignment from God to prepare a people. That was his assignment for the coming of Messiah. And this preparation had a unique quality and tone. And you could kind of summarize it in a word. You know it, repentance. Repentance. The original word is pronounced metanoia. We get our word metamorphosis from it. It, kind of, it Literally, if you break it down, it means with, that's the meta, noia, the mind, with the mind. Now, repentance had a deeper meaning that just think differently, although it included that. It included like reorient your outlook. Think differently. John said, dealing with people who had certain ideas and thoughts about who God was, about who Messiah would be, if he came, there is quite a bit of expectation around that. And John is there to say, you're going to have to think differently than the scripts you've been writing. It's going to look different. That was part of his ministry. But there's also another meaningful shade to repentance that the culture had brought in to it. And it meant to turn, to go a different way, to, to behave differently. The military used the word. They, they picked it up, and it meant about face. You know that word, right? Soldiers are marching this direction. The sergeant or whoever yells about face, and they go the opposite way. 
Repentance had that shading in it as well. So John is preaching this message of repentance, and people are coming, and they're being baptized. Baptism was, baptism was his symbol that I'm in. I'm turning. I'm thinking differently. I'm looking forward to something else. It also had another tone to it, the baptism, and it was of cleansing, of washing. That makes sense, doesn't it? It was a water baptism. So it had this, had this sense of purification upon. So all, all those meanings are loaded up here, turning. It was kind of like get right, get curious, and turn around, all mixed in together. So you, you, they, you can see them overlapping there. One of the things John's clear about in his ministry is his message as well as the baptism, was pointing beyond him to something, someone else. Luke records this saying of him, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one coming after me. One whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You're going to feel its effect. It's going to be inward. It's going to be empowering and equipping. It's going to be spiritual reformation. And it's going to be like fire. It's not going to be just a soft, little, gentle thing. You're going to feel it. It's ironic that John, and fair that he was, is seen as this kind of radical wilderness, you know, big hair guy out on the wilderness. But he's the one who's saying, one's coming after me. You think this is anything? Well, you better hold on. Because the one who's coming, he's going to do something big. So get curious. Get right. Turn around. That's kind of the message. And then there's a twist in the narrative that John layers in here very brilliantly. It appears there might be some tension in the air. Not between Jesus and cousin John, but between their followers. John reports the conflict rather kindly. A debate arose between John's disciples and a certain Jew. Now, who is this certain Jew? He doesn't name John's disciples, nor does he name this individual. Some people he means a group, two groups, but the word is actually an individual. Some people think it was a Pharisee, someone kind of from the other side of the river, so to speak. Uh, someone trapped in kind of the legalistic system that had been constructed by men, scholars, scribes. And that's, that's a very real possibility. John doesn't name him, so we can't know for sure. Um, but the context suggests this is between a follower of John, or a few of them, and a follower of Jesus. We don't know for sure. My money's on Peter, James, or John. Uh, that totally makes sense to me. They're not afraid of a fight, that's for sure. But I could be wrong about that. But here's the deal. What's in view is not the argument. That's not really the point 
of this story. That's not the subject. After the argument was over, John's followers get together. And maybe they're a little bit beat up over it. I don't know. But they start talking about, by the way, some of our group is leaving and going to Jesus group. So this gets nurtured into a, quote, godly concern. So they're going to go to John. Rabbi, you know the one you've been pointing to? The one you've been talking about? You've been so kind to him. We've been for him. Well, Rabbi, we just thought you might want to know that um, they're baptizing too on this side of the river and people are leaving our group and going over there. We just thought it would be good for you to know how noble of them <laughs> to care so much. Well, this looks like a lot like jealousy. It looks like a competitive spirit that's nurtured. That's the setting, as much as I can understand it. But the setting itself isn't the point either. It's not the argument that provides, like, the punch. John moves on from that quickly. I think it's probably one reason he doesn't name them. It's not what he wants to stay in. He wants to get to the Baptist words. Words that have challenged and inspired people for a couple thousand years now. Words on the painting over here. John says, a man or woman can only receive what's been given to him from heaven. There it is. I wonder if there's some in this room for whom that statement has been really meaningful for. I'm not going to make you share it. Is that true for anybody here? Like, God's really used this verse in my life. Anybody else? Am I the only one in the room? Or any nods? Okay. Good, man. I'm going to let you guys have it, man. A man can only receive what's been given him from heaven. You know, it's one of, the, it's one of those sayings that can really grab you, or it can sort of pass you by. It's one of those that your grandmother can cross-stitch as your graduation gift. You hang it on your wall, and that's the end of it. Or it's one that she can give you and go, that's going by the bathroom mirror. I need to see that one every day when I'm brushing my teeth. And that's okay. It's an interesting, real, really obvious play on words. A man can only receive what he's been given. I mean, logic majors, does that not make sense? You can only receive what someone else places in your hands. Anything else you get other than by the way of receiving, you've got to get it another way. You're going to have to grab it in one way or the other. See, John had been given a role to play. Prepare the way for others to receive Christ. And now, we see John has internalized this. Because he's being tested. Right here. We've seen that John has accepted this in his life. You know, it's one thing to be given something 
It's another to receive it. Does that make sense? It's one thing to be given a gift. You graduates are getting gifts, I presume. You know, there's some of them you're like, okay, not sure what I'm going to do with that. That's why money's always the safe thing, right? And then there's some you're like, this is for me. I'm not even sure I'm going to show it to anybody else. This is for me, and I know it. That was for John, and he had internalized it. You can only receive what you've been given. So much so that now when he's being tested, he can articulate it with precision. When his followers come to him with this godly concern, he, he, he doesn't have to go away and rub his brow and, and, and you know, like, like me, have, have 30 days to think about it. He, he's just like, hey, I can only receive what I've been given, guys. You know, it's one thing to understand something. It's another thing to identify yourself with it. It's another thing to own it. Make it yours. John had accepted the fact that his life and ministry was only the opening act. Someone else was the main event. He'd been so formed deeply in it. A man can only receive what's been given to him. He wanted, when others saw him, he wanted them to see him looking at someone else. He wanted to deflect. He could have gone a different way. He could have taken his followers' concern to heart and nurture it. My golly, there might be something to that now that you mention it. now Now that I think about it, I've noticed that too. We're shrinking They're increasing. He could have followed the natural human inclination to make his life about him. He had a following. He had zealous, zealous, he had zealous, committed people who had heard his call to repentance and said, I am in. I like this guy. I like what he's saying. It's, it's resonating in my soul. And they had responded. They had left that tired old religious system to follow him. But he didn't do that. He didn't nurture that. Because he had already been nurturing a different way. A way that had led him to this place. It's easy to think that when they ask him this question, the Holy Spirit just zaps him with the right thing to say well I'm not claiming the Holy Spirit wasn't involved with what he said I'm saying this is where John had been living he had already decided probably a thousand times to be honest that his life his livelihood would not be about his inclinations he would not be about getting his way in life he would not be about promoting his version of truth He would not be about making himself or his movement great. He would point to another. And he would say, he must increase. And I will diminish. John's disciples were concerned about him losing his influence. John knew his influence was not his to keep. 
A man can only receive what he's been given. You, I, we can only receive what we've been given. Anything else we want that's not been given, we'll have to get it a different way. Let's, let's consider just for a moment before we close what John had been given. First of all, he's the cousin of Jesus. I mean, you talk about bragging rights on the playground as a kid. Anybody got like a celebrity relative? I had, I had one. He's not with us anymore. But like, I walked on the playground in the sixth grade with a fair amount of swagger. Because I could always pull that card if needed. My cousin was the captain of the Blue Angels. I mean, it's kind of hard to top that if you're in the sixth grade. So John, as a child, is like, you know, he could pull that card. My cousin's the savior of the world. I wonder if that started a few fights on the playground. John had been given the unique, a unique role, right? To prepare the world for Jesus. I mean, that's pretty big. <laughs> that's pretty cool. No one else got to do that in the way he did. He'd been given this ministry of baptism with this urgency in it, this call. It was groundbreaking. He got to be the one that the prophets for centuries had been Talking about, there's a voice that's going to cry out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. John got to be that guy. He had a very meaningful place in God's redemptive purposes. Globally. That's cool. You know, God has done a work in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. Or if you're on your way to becoming a follower of Jesus. You're a part of his redemptive purpose in the world. You have a stake in it. You have a role in it. It may not look like John the Baptist. I'm kind of hoping mine doesn't. But whatever it is in your life, he wants you to do this. Point. John's assignment did not reside at the center, it pointed. So I, I just want to take us to two clear, distinct lessons from this. God may package it a little bit differently. His Spirit may speak a little bit different lesson for you, and that's great. I just want to give you two. One, and they're gonna, not going to be new, probably. One is your life is ultimately not about you. I don't say that to communicate you don't matter or you're not significant or you don't have like this tremendous identity in Jesus. That you're not treasured and valued. Don't hear that at all. Your life is ultimately not about you. John had to come to understand that to build a life for himself that was focused on himself was a dead end. He wants to say that to us. There is one and he is one and only worth building your life on. Only one who can truly bear the weight of your hope and longing 
Only one secure direction to point to. If you think your giftedness or your degree or your intelligence or your appearance or your pedigree or your legacy is going to secure the life your heart is longing for, the life that you're envisioning, you are going to cycle through disappointment after disappointment. And you have a long road ahead. There's another way being offered. And ironically, the one who's worthy of being at the center, he gave his life up. (laughs) The one who could truly bear the weight of being at the center of humanity, he gave his life up for us so that we could share in it with him. So that we might have an unending abundant life. Yeah, one that's filled with consolation and desolation at times. That's our experience. That's our human experience, even in Jesus, as was his. But one is that's going in a direction that's really, really good. Jesus understood this. That's why his teaching came off so pointed about it. If anyone wants to save his life, he would say, he must lose it. You can't make yourself the center. Anyone who loves their life, you can't keep it. If we make our desires, our longings, our ambitions, our agendas, our plans ultimate, it will not bring us what we think. They will turn on you and consume you. Christ's example must stand up for us. The second lesson is this. When we receive with grace and with gusto what we've been given, we will be surprised at how much that is. When I'm focused on what I want and getting what I want, often what God is offering looks very pitiful to me. It looks like desolation often. It looks like not much. But when I am receiving with gratitude the life God has for me, including the trials, and I'm learning the way of being okay with what's coming from His hand for my life, Something happens. This surprise happens. And what he's given me is a whole lot more than what I thought. It's so much more in every way. So John says, you yourselves can testify that I'm said, I'm not the Christ. Great study is to compare Jesus saying, I am, to John the Baptist saying, I am not. I'm the one who's been sent before him. The one who has the bride, that's Jesus. He's the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom, he says. I'm the one attending him. That's my role. I'm I'm the one to hear his voice. And now he says, I'm rejoicing greatly. See, that's what you don't see. 
when you're trying to get what you want. You not doing the math of joy at that point. Who's the math major, Jared? Yeah, yeah. Not doing the math of joy there, you know. And when, when we're focused on me, what I want when I want it, I'm not thinking about joy and peace. I'm not thinking about abundance. I'm not thinking about a stream of living water flowing within. I'm just thinking about usually something else. So John is presenting Jesus as the bridegroom and himself as the friend. As he says, it's enough for me. I can afford to diminish, to to decrease. It's no problem for me to not get what my followers think I should have. Why? Because the joy of seeing the one I've been pointing to get the glory he's worthy of. Oh man, that's enough. That's enough for me. It's more than enough. Your life is not ultimately about you. When we try to make it, it just leads us in the cycle of disappointment. When we receive what we've been given, we get surprised on how much it is. The psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. From the hand of God comes great provisions. Said another way, God knows how to take care of his kids. These simple lessons, unfortunately, don't come easy for most of us. They haven't for me. I mentioned the painting earlier. This isn't the first time I've taught from this text. The first time was about 13 years ago. And it inspired one of our artists in the room, Orion, uh, to paint this. It inspired him so much. And um, he wanted to own it. And make it his. So he painted it. And I really, they were as compelling to me as they were for him. And then a few years later, after that, I got tested by them. Like John the Baptist, I got tested. Would I receive with gratitude what I'd been given? Or would I put my focus on more that I would have to grab to get? And it was a season of testing that lasted a couple years, to be honest with you. you know, it wasn't like a moment. And unlike John the Baptist, Jim the Baptist didn't always do so well with, with the test. Um, there were times of failure in the way I responded, but I'm grateful to say um, God was kind to me and did a work, has done a work. That's still going on. And that's what he does with us. He shapes us in these deep lessons. That shaping for Cindy and I led us here. It wasn't just about me. It was what she was walking through too. It led us here and we're so grateful. And we can say, at least in our better moments, this is our desire to only receive what he gives us. I hope the next test, I can just say it and not get so imbalanced from it. We can only receive what's given to us from the hand of God. You can only receive what's given to you from the hand of God. He does that through other people often, through circumstances, 
I mean, it has, I don't want to get the idea, it has to float down from heaven on a parachute or a dove brings it. That would be cool, you know, its beak, you know. But no, God does it usually in very common, ordinary ways. He provides and gifts and is good to us. And it's always about Jesus. It's always wrapped up in his grace every time. So where are you with this? Is this, right now, it's just kind of passing you by? Or is this for you today? What, what are you being tempted to try to grab that you're not sure is supposed to be yours? What are you asking God to put in your hand? That's a really good prayer. What are you waiting on for him to put in your hand? That's a deeply formational work if you really want it, isn't it? I want to say to you, you are seen by the living God. He sees you. He knows what you long for. He knows what you aspire to. He knows the stirrings that you can't quite define. And he's attentive to them. And he's prepared to put in your hands what he knows is going to bring you the most life. In his essence, he's nothing but good. He knows. You can't bear the weight of your own self-centeredness. I've been figuring out how to say that all week. You can't bear the weight of it. It'll, it'll consume you. There's one who can. You can look to him and say, I'll take whatever you give me. Somehow he can bear the weight of that for millions of people. He is a great God who came in the flesh as one of us. That is the gospel. He loves you. He gave his life for you. You can receive what he gives you. As John did with joy, with gusto. Where are you at with it? Let's pray together. Ask the worship team to come on up. You know, this is true for each of us as individuals. It's true for us as a community. This is why prayer is so important. We often discover in prayer, through prayer, what God has for us. It's why being in His Word is so important. Because it helps us get us out of our own heads. And, and to look and see how God has spoken to His people, through His people. For so long. Ultimately, it's why we fix our gaze on Jesus, as John did. That's always the safe thing to do. We will receive what he gives us. He's not a stingy God. So, Lord, we pray that you would be good to us. We are a needy people. 
We have inclinations and desires, and that's not a bad thing. Lord, it only goes south when we make what we want and define our lives by that. Lord, forgive us. We want to receive what you have for us. Put us in that place. We don't even really know how to do that very well. Lord, your word and your spirit and community following you with our lives is going to shape us in that way. Make us into that people. Make us into those families, those those workers and students and professors and engineers and all of it, Lord. Help us to receive what you give. Lord, I ask that you would give us a lot. It's a bit scary to ask for. But Lord, we want our lives to count. And it's okay if it's a little. You know what we can bear. You know us as individuals, collectively. We want to be used for your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.